We will be reading from Mark 8:31 through 9:10. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. This is the very word of God. We live in a world that is, only knows that the way to have power is to win to win elections, to win contests, to win in popularity, to win in fame. Jesus says something really amazing in this passage. It's a verse that I know we've probably all heard repeatedly, but it is profound and perplexing. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will find it. Today we wrap up our series on the kingdom of God, really the second part of our series that we've been doing this month called The King and His Victory. And this morning as we put this series behind us and move on, in two weeks we'll begin our next expositional series through the Old Testament book of Ezra. So that'll be fun. But as we move on from this series, I hope that the meaning of the kingdom of God will stay with us, will orient our lives in everything that we do and all that we think, that the the reality of the kingdom of God will push us to see that we have, as followers of Jesus, a power that is unknown in the world today. It's the power to lose. The power to lose it all. And I mean a power. A power that brings us the greatest victory that we could possibly have 
But it comes perplexingly, ironically, through losing. Losing it all. In this passage that's before us today, Jesus is bringing to our attention that the power of God's victorious kingdom, a kingdom that's coming, a kingdom that has already been inaugurated and is coming in fullness when Jesus returns, this victorious kingdom is worth it all. It's worth the cost of anything. It's worth the cost of losing everything. It's worth any cost to follow God's victorious king into his victorious kingdom. In order for us to see this this morning, I'd like us to consider from this teaching of the word of God how the kingdom comes, how we enter into that kingdom, and how we can desire it more than anything else. How the kingdom comes, how we enter into that kingdom and how we can desire God's kingdom more than anything else. First, I want you to consider with me this morning, from this passage, how the kingdom of God comes, because the kingdom of God does not come as we expect. It never comes as we expect. So if we do not have our expectations, our assumptions about the kingdom of God constantly challenged, we'll miss it. Here in verses 27 to 30 of chapter 8, we find an important dialogue that Jesus has with his his disciples. We, We looked at these verses last week as they're recorded in Matthew's gospel. Who is this Jesus that Christians follow? And we know who he is. He's the Christ, the Messiah. The weight of what that means needs to land on us. We talked about it last week. He is, to say it another way, God's king. He is Lord, the sovereign of the world. He's Lord even of the entire cosmos, the universe. There's there's no one higher in status and privilege than he. But now look at verse 31 here in Mark's passage in chapter 8. With Peter's confession, you are the Christ, still ringing in our ears, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and after three days, rise again. And notice what Mark says in the next verse. Jesus said this plainly. Jesus was clear about the price that he was about to pay with his own life. This was no invention of his disciples after Jesus had died, you know, some way of making an excuse for the apparent failure of their religious cult leader. Jesus did not make up this either. He taught his disciples, Mark says, taught them that the Son of Man must suffer, that he must be rejected. He, he wasn't just predicting what would come. He was saying this is what had been prophesied all along. This is what Jesus must do to fulfill all that the scripture had been saying. He must be rejected. He must be killed. And then after three days, rise again. The necessity of his suffering was based, of course, on the teaching of the scriptures, The Old Testament scriptures. 
if we're reading our Bibles rightly, according to the teaching of Jesus, everything in the Old Testament should be pointing us, highlighting for us the necessity of the Messiah suffering, suffering many things, all the way to the point of death, death on a cross. Now, recall that the resurrected Christ in Luke's gospel had to show a couple of bewildered Christians as they journeyed to a village named Emmaus that it was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things. Luke tells us that Jesus began with Moses and all the prophets and interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. Do you see it, Christian? Everything in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, is pointing us unequivocally, clearly to the reality, the necessity that the coming Christ, the Messiah, God's King, the Lord of the universe must suffer, be rejected, die, and then rise again. The passion of the Christ is the consistent teaching of the Christian scriptures in the Old Testament as well as the New. We are not reading our Bibles rightly. We're not interpreting and applying them correctly unless the necessity of Christ's passion is emphasized and plain. So if that's the way that the Christ will go, the Christ whom Christians follow, if this is the necessary way, then what could be more non-Christian than to suggest anything other than this path of suffering for the Christ? Nothing could be more demonic, more satanic than to suggest a path of ease for Christ rather than a path of suffering. In fact, isn't that what we read when the devil came and tempted Jesus? He came with a quick and painless path to acquiring the kingdom. You remember the devil's temptation. He says, all these kingdoms of the world and their glory I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. No need to suffer. No need to die. No reason to be rejected. I'll give you an easier path, a quicker path to the glory of the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus, of course, responds to that temptation with the words, Be gone, Satan. Now, does that remind you of the passage before us right here? After hearing Jesus teach plainly about the need that he suffer, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But Jesus turned and rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. Now, Jesus is not saying that Peter is the embodiment of Satan, that he's somehow possessed by Satan himself. But also, Jesus is not mincing words. To suggest that the path of suffering is not the way of the Christ and the way of his kingdom is to oppose Christ. It's to be satanic, to be in opposition to Jesus and his kingdom in the strongest degree possible. Now, I can imagine, surely, Peter meant well. 
when he rebuked Jesus for speaking so frankly about his suffering and death. I'm sure Peter thought that he was on Christ's side. He wanted him to reign after all. He said, you are the Christ. I'm sure he wanted to see with every ambition of his life, this Christ honored and glorified. He wanted to see Jesus and his kingdom exalted, not humiliated. I'm sure he meant well when he refused to let Jesus wash his feet on the night Jesus was betrayed. But Jesus said to him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. I'm sure Peter meant well when he drew his sword in the garden of Gethsemane and cut off the right ear of the high priest's servant. But Jesus healed the wounded man, turned to Peter and said, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? And Christian, I'm sure you and I mean well when we think that we are somehow defending and advancing the kingdom of God by a show of strength and force. When we unite together politically to stop the spread of a secular society, I'm sure we mean well. I'm sure we think we are doing the Lord's work and fighting for his kingdom in many of the ways that Christians have a reputation for behaving and acting in this world. But I'm asking you this question. What if we're not? What if by these kinds of actions and behaviors and the kinds of politicians that we support, what if in the midst of our zeal for our Lord, our desire to see him exalted, we are actually found to be opposing God? Because you see, the kingdom of God comes according to God's plan and according to the actions of God's king. And it comes through his suffering and his death. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with a savior who suffers? The kingdom of God doesn't need our help. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He is the one who will advance his kingdom in his way. And be careful, lest in your zeal for advancing the kingdom, you actually find that you are in the way. In fact, The very reason, the necessity for the Christ to suffer is because we are in the way. (laughs) We are the ones that he has to come to save. We are enemies of God by nature. Since the kingdom of God comes through the suffering, death, and resurrection of the Messiah, it should come as no surprise that for us to enter this kingdom involves a similar kind of loss For us, in the next episode, verses 34 to, what do we do with verse 1, chapter 9? We find Jesus speaking in this passage to a broader audience. Notice he speaks to the crowd, not just to the disciples. The following teaching of Jesus, what we're about to read here, applies not just to the original apostles, not just to the formal leaders of Christianity, not just to the elders and to the deacons and to those mature Christians that maybe one day you'll be like. What Jesus is about to say applies to 
anybody who wants to be a part of the kingdom. You want to be in this kingdom? You want to be a part of the kingdom of God? Here's what Jesus teaches and teaches plainly. He says this to all who would hear him. Not only does the way of the Christ involve loss, the way of the Christian does as well. Are you okay with that? Not only will the way of the Messiah come through suffering and death and then resurrection, that's the way it's going to be for all who will enter the kingdom. So away with any hint of prosperity Christianity, you know, the idea that being a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Christ is going to be a different path than the one Christ himself walked away with that. It simply does not comply with the plain teaching of scripture. The only way to enter the kingdom is to lose it all. Lose it all. Jesus says, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Denial, death, discipleship. You want to be in this kingdom? Deny yourself, die, and be a disciple. Still want to sign up? Okay. What does it mean to deny yourself is not giving up chocolates for Lent. To deny yourself is not to say, well, maybe I'll settle for, you know, that little bit, take away the little trinket off the new car. That I'm going to deny myself. Okay? That's not what Jesus means by denying yourself. He's saying something totally different. Look at it carefully. The condition here. For entering the kingdom is not denying something to the self. It's denying the self itself. (laughs) This is the first condition to enter the kingdom. How do you deny yourself? Well, the second condition to take up your cross shows that we must embrace a Christ-like death. He doesn't just say, deny yourself die. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross. In other words, the same path that Jesus is following, the same kind of death that Jesus is dying. So as Jesus took up his cross, he says, you want to be in my kingdom? You got to take up yours. We have to die like Jesus died. And, and, And yes, that means perhaps dying as a martyr, if that is the will of God, a willingness even to be murdered rather than to deny your faith in Christ. But most of us, most of us right now in this room are not in any real threat of that. Of that. And, and because of that, I'm afraid we might miss the importance of what Jesus is saying. Because like Peter, you might hear these words and say, I'll lay down my life for you. John 13, 37, but then like Peter, we find ourselves instead very quickly before the morning dawns denying Jesus three times. So let's take a moment and count the cost for entering the kingdom. Jesus has just told us what it will cost us to be his disciple. He has just told us this is what is required if you're going to be a Christian. 
Now, the question, what must I do to be saved, is answered elsewhere. Acts 16, 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But here Jesus is showing us what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ means not to believe on yourself, to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to follow Jesus. To be a convert to Christ means taking up the mantle of discipleship. And if you're going to follow this Jesus, it's going to cost you everything. Everything. Jesus says this plainly in the next verse. Whoever would, verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So I ask you today, have you lost your life for Christ? Now, <laughs> what does that mean? You, you, I'm, I'm looking at breathing people today. Praise God. So what do you mean have I lost my life for Christ What is he asking us to do? What is he telling us to do? What is he calling us to do? It it means, have you shifted the center of gravity off of yourself and your will for your life and onto Christ and what he wills? It's a kind of self-denial that it's not recklessness as if God rewards us for doing something destructive to our bodies. Self-denial also is not self-pity. These are easily confused. A form of pride that disguises itself as self-hatred. That's not what it means to deny yourself. But don't think that it means a mere willingness. Like Peter, I'd, I'd lay my life down for you. Some kind of comment that we make while we calculate that probably we'll never actually be put to that test. Don't do that either, Western comfortable Christian. So what do you do? Beware the sin of holding back a little something for yourself, like Ananias and Sapphira, who sold a piece of property but kept back part of the proceeds for their own gratification. Do not think you can lie to the Holy Spirit and get away with it. If you try to save your life, you will lose it, Jesus says. So how, how do I deny myself? How, how do I do How do I lose my life? What must I do to be saved, you're saying? How do I enter the kingdom? These are not, on the face of it, bad questions, but I'm just saying to you, if that's what's going through your mind right now, there, there could be something wrong with those questions. Because it might be a clever way for you to try to have your cake and eat it too. These might be ways for us to look for some actual effort to save ourselves. If you're hearing these words of Jesus and you're saying, make it a little clearer, Ben. Give me the list. Show me what's the price. What's the price I have to pay? My concern is that you might be saying, just name the price. No matter how how high the price is to pay, I'll pay it. But here's the thing. The price you have to pay is everything. Everything. If you pay this price, the price Jesus says you have to pay to enter the kingdom, if you pay this price, you will have 
nothing left. Not one dime, not one penny, not one breath. You got to die. This is a high price. If you want to be a Christian, if you want to follow Christ, if you want to enter into his kingdom, then you have to stop trying to win. You have to stop aiming to save your life. And you got to take all of that effort instead and put it toward losing. And that's weird. Who does that? It's completely counterintuitive. And it's the only way, Jesus says, to actually save your life. Put all your effort into losing your life for Christ and for his gospel, and you will find life, Jesus says. And you're sitting here thinking, because I was thinking this, what does it mean? I'm still trying to get that. Like, tell me what it means. And, and here's maybe a way to help. The, the word soul in verses 36 to 37 is the same word as the word life in verse 35. So I'd, I'd rather us not, I'd rather the ESV not use the word soul in those two verses. Because I know what happens in our minds when we hear the word soul. Jesus is, maybe it would help if I just read the verses that way. Verses 35. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? What can a man give in return for his life? That's what Jesus is saying. It's more complex than you'd think. Because Jesus is not comparing material things with non-material things in these verses. And that's probably what you do when you hear the word soul. I'm guessing... If you're anything like me, you hear the word soul and you begin to think disembodied entity. That's probably what you're doing. It's not what Jesus has in mind. He's not saying, give up all your possessions and live in misery. And then when you finally die and escape the body, your disembodied soul will be free. And that's what millions of Christians think the gospel is all about. That is not the kingdom of God. You should, have, you should know this by now. We've been doing this for a few weeks. This should be completely out with a thought. Out with a thought. Jesus is saying something different. Of course, our possessions and wealth, material things in this life, do pose a serious risk to our eternal life. But it's not because they're material. It's not because they are embodied, tangible. It's because they're mortal. It's because they're mortal. They're not going to endure forever. So Paul tells those who are rich in the world, do not set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. They can't last. They will not last. Or on anything else that is mortal. That's not the Christian way. That's not the way of the kingdom. Jesus instead invites us to follow him into his eternal kingdom, a kingdom that is embodied but immortal. A new creation that comes only when there's death and resurrection. 
So if you want to enter this kingdom, you, you can't pay a price high enough. What could you give in exchange for your life? The answer, nothing. It's all you got. It's all you got. So you can't pray enough prayers. You can't do enough good deeds. You cannot make yourself worthy no matter how hard you try. But there is something you must do. You have to find life somewhere else. The center of gravity has to shift. Jesus must become your life through denying yourself, dying, and discipleship. It's the only way. It's the only way. So to put the matter as simply as I know, look at what Jesus says in verse 38. To follow Christ, to be a Christian, to enter the kingdom, you have to lose all shame about him and his words. What does it look like to be the kind of person who's not ashamed of Christ and his gospel? You probably have in your mind that bold evangelist, right? Or that Christian missionary who's just in a terrifying place, unafraid. That's what goes to your mind? So what do you do now? What about you right here in Oklahoma City, 2021? How can you be this kind of person? It, here's what it means. It means you are the kind of person who has complete confidence in Christ and his kingdom. Everything. You, you stake it all on who Jesus is and what he has done. It, it means you desire You long for the kingdom of God more than anything else. It does not mean you've earned anything. It means you know you can't earn it. You have no price you could pay. All you got is your life. And you couldn't pay a price high enough. So what you desire is something more than that. You desire, you're talking about a desire for Jesus and his kingdom that I just, it came to mind this morning. I couldn't help it. It's the kind of desire that Buddy the Elf has when he says, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. That's what you need. That's what you need. How, how do you get it? How do you get this desire for the kingdom? It would be hard to desire the kingdom if you didn't have an encounter with it at all. If all we're talking about right now just sounds like you thought of kingdom of God as just something that's waiting for you when you die, then you're not going to desire it. You're just not. You can't fall in love with someone that you've never encountered in some way, right? Does that make sense? You can't be completely ignorant of the kingdom and yet desire the kingdom. If you've never had a taste of the kingdom of God, you don't desire it. But you can have a taste because Jesus has already inaugurated this kingdom. It's already here. Do you see? You you can have a taste of it. So we get to chapter 9. Peter, James, and John, they get a taste of the kingdom in this incredible story that we call the the transfiguration of Jesus. The story is a foretaste of the 
consummated kingdom of God. Jesus is transfigured. In other words, his outward form is changed. So he appears apparently in his resurrected immortal body. And there's two prominent Old Testament figures that show up. Elijah and Moses, fully embodied and immortal. It's a a taste of the coming kingdom. It's a powerful experience, but it's also a terrifying experience. You read what happens. Now, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if you could taste the kingdom like Peter, James, and John did? If you had that kind of experience, would you say, okay, bring that on, and I'm going to desire the kingdom. But here's the thing. The three disciples who had who had this experience, it wasn't the experience itself that helped them. In fact, they're confused. They're totally confused by it. <laughs> Just You read Peter again, like, well, let's build some tents. You're like, well, he's totally confused. He doesn't know what to say. He's terrified. He's afraid. The most important moment in the whole experience was the clarifying words that came out of the cloud in verse 7. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. I say that's the most important moment in the whole thing because Peter, when he writes about the experience later in his epistle, he emphasizes this. He, he talks about it in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, we were with him on that mountain. We saw the glory. But here's what he says. We heard a voice from heaven. 2 Peter 1.18. And then he says this to his audience. He says this, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention. So you're sitting here today saying, I, I, I didn't have an experience like this. If I had that, then I'd desire the kingdom. Peter's saying, you can't, you're not going to have that experience. You're not going to experience the transfiguration of Jesus. But you have the most important element of the transfiguration, you have that experience too. I don't want to overstate the case. You're getting it, listen, you're getting it right now. I'm not talking about hearing my voice. But Peter says, you hear the same voice speaking to you from the scriptures urging you to listen to God's beloved son. When you read the scriptures, when you hear the scriptures proclaimed to you as a testimony of Christ and his kingdom, urging you to listen more than you listen to your cable news channel or your news feed, or that conversation at the water cooler. Do people still stand by the water coolers in the aisle? I have no idea. But the Xerox vision. Whatever you stand by. And those conversations, the voice you're listening to more than any other voice coming through loud and clear is the testimony of God about his son from the scriptures. So as Jesus and the three disciples come down from the mountain, he charged them. To tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they complied. They did. But they continued wondering, what does he mean? What is the, what's the meaning of this rising from the dead? And then, on Easter Sunday, 
it all came together. The resurrection of Jesus means that the kingdom of God has come. It has come in victory. Jesus has suffered the penalty of sin for all his people. He has paid the price of your life. Do you see it? He's paid the price you couldn't pay. He paid the price with his life for your life. But he has also been raised from the dead, indicating that through faith in Jesus and following him as his disciple, you get a taste of the kingdom that is coming in fullness soon enough. So what does it mean? It means that in Christ, you have already died to sin and to its condemnation. You've already experienced death through faith in Christ. It means that in Christ, you have overcome that power of death through resurrection. It means that in Christ, do you know who you are? If you are in Christ, you are, you are new creation. You look around at brothers and sisters and you're seeing Evidence, taste of the coming kingdom of God, the transforming, transfiguring power of his resurrection. It's right here in this room, in your brothers and sisters. And if you're in Christ, it's right here in you too. It means that even if we die, yet shall we live. Not in some disembodied soul, but in a resurrected, immortal body. This is the kingdom of God. It's why citizens of the kingdom seek that kingdom first. It's what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. It means you have the power to lose it all. Let's pray together.